Chapter Three of the Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France, translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter Three, wherein the mystery begins. At seven o'clock on the evening of that day, having as usual replaced all the books which had been taken from their shelves and having assured himself that he was leaving everything in good order, he quitted the library, double-locking the door after him. According to his usual habit, he dined at the Cremerie des Quatre-Vecs, read his newspaper, La Croix, and at ten o'clock went home to his little house on the Rue de Regarde. The good man had no trouble and no presentiment of evil. His sleep was peaceful. The next morning at seven o'clock to the minute he entered the little room leading to the library and according to his daily habit doffed his grand frock coat and taking down an old one which hung in a cupboard over his washstand put it on then he went into his workroom where for sixteen years he had been cataloguing six days out of the seven under the lofty gaze of alexandre de parvieu Preparing to make a round of the various rooms, he entered the first and largest, which contained works on theology and religion in huge cupboards whose cornices were adorned with bronze-colored busts of poets and orators of ancient days. Two enormous globes representing the earth and the heavens filled the window embrasures. But at his first step, Monsieur Sariette dropped dead stupefied, powerless alike to doubt or to credit what his eyes beheld. On the blue cloth cover of his writing-table, books lay scattered about pell-mell, some lying flat, some standing upright. A number of quartos were heaped up in a tottering pile. Two Greek lexicons, one inside the other, formed a single being more monstrous in shape than the human couples of the divine Plato. A gilt-edged folio was all agape, showing three of its leaves disgracefully dog's-eared. Having, after an interval of some moments, recovered from his profound amazement, the librarian went up to the table and recognized in the confused mass his most valuable Hebrew, French, and Latin Bibles, a unique Talmud, rabbinical treatises printed and in manuscript, Aramaic and Samaritan texts and scrolls from the synagogues, in fine, the most precious relics of Israel, all lying in a disordered heap, gaping and crumbled. Monsieur Sariette found himself confronted with an inexplicable phenomenon. Nevertheless, he sought to account for it. How eagerly he would have welcomed the idea that Monsieur Gaetan, who being a thoroughly unprincipled man, presumed on the right gained him by his fatal liberality towards the library to rummage there, unhindered during his sojourns in Paris, had been the author of this terrible disorder. But Monsieur Gaetan was away traveling in Italy, after pondering for some minutes, Monsieur Sariette's next supposition 
was that Monsieur René d'Eparvieux had entered the library late in the evening, with the keys of his manservant Hippolyte, who, for the past twenty-five years, had looked after the second floor and the attics. Monsieur René d'Eparvieux, however, never worked at night, and did not read Hebrew. Perhaps, thought Monsieur Sariette, perhaps he had brought or allowed to be brought to this room some priest, or Jerusalem monk, on his way through Paris, some oriental savant given to scriptural exegesis. Monsieur Sariette next wondered whether the Abbé Patouille, who had an inquiring mind, and also a habit of dogs earing his books, had, peradventure, flung himself on these Talmudic and biblical texts, fired with sudden zeal to lay bare the soul of Shem. He even asked himself for a moment whether Hippolyte, the old manservant, who had swept and dusted the library for a quarter of a century, and had been slowly poisoned by the dust of accumulated knowledge, had allowed his curiosity to get the better of him, and had been there during the night, ruining his eyesight and his reason, and losing his soul poring by moonlight over these undecipherable symbols. Monsieur Sariette even went so far as to imagine that young Maurice, on leaving his club or some nationalist meeting, might have torn these Jewish volumes from their shelves out of hatred for old Jacob and his modern posterity for this young man of family was a declared anti-Semite, and only consorted with those Jews who were as anti-Semitic as himself. It was giving a very free rein to his imagination, but Monsieur Sariette's brain could not rest, and went wandering about among speculations of the wildest extravagance. Impatient to know the truth, the zealous guardian of the library called the manservant. Hippolyte knew nothing. The porter at the lodge could not furnish any clue. None of the domestics had heard a sound. Monsieur Sariette went down to the study of Monsieur René d'Eparvieux, who received him in nightcap and dressing gown, listened to his story with the air of a serious man bored with idle chatter, and dismissed him with words which conveyed a cruel implication of pity. "'Do not worry, my good Monsieur Sariette. Be sure that the books were lying where you left them last night.' Monsieur Sariette reiterated his inquiries a score of times, discovered nothing, and suffered such anxiety that sleep entirely forsook him. When, on the following day, at seven o'clock, he entered the room with the busts and globes, and saw that all was in order, he heaved a sigh of relief. Then suddenly his heart beat fit to burst. He had just seen, lying flat on the mantelpiece, a paper-bound volume, a modern work, the boxwood paper-knife, which had served to cut its pages, still thrust between the leaves. It was a dissertation on the two parallel versions of Genesis, a work which Monsieur Sariette had relegated to the attic, and which had never left it up to now. No one in Monsieur d'Eparvieux's circle 
having had the curiosity to differentiate between the parts for which the polytheistic and monotheistic contributors were respectively responsible in the formation of the first of the sacred books. This book bore the label R, greater than, 3214 to the eighth, divided by two. And this painful truth was suddenly borne in upon the mind of Monsieur Sariette, to wit, that the most scientific system of numbering will not help to find a book if the book is no longer in its place. Every day of the ensuing month found the table littered with books. Greek and Latin lay cheek by jowl with Hebrew. Monsieur Sariette asked himself whether these nocturnal flittings were the work of evildoers, who entered by the skylights to steal valuable and precious volumes. But he found no traces of burglary, and, notwithstanding the most minute search, failed to discover that anything had disappeared. Terrible anxiety took possession of his mind, and he fell to wondering whether it was possible that some monkey in the neighborhood came down the chimney and acted the part of a person engaged in study. Deriving his knowledge of the habits of these animals in the main form the paintings of Watteau and Chadrin, he took it that, in the art of imitating gestures or assuming characters, they resembled Harlequin, Scarmouche, Zerlin, and the doctors of the Italian comedy. He imagined them handling a palette and brushes, pounding drugs in a mortar, or turning over the leaves of an old treatise on alchemy beside an Athenor. And so it was that, when on one unhappy morning he saw a huge blot of ink on one of the leaves of the third volume of the polyglot Bible, bound in blue Morocco, and adorned with the arms of the Comte de Mirabeau, he had no doubt that a monkey was the author of the evil deed. The monkey had been pretending to take notes and had upset the ink-pot. It must be a monkey belonging to a learned professor. Imbued with this idea, Monsieur Sariette carefully studied the topography of the district, so as to draw a cordon round the group of houses amid which the Desparvieux house stood. Then he visited the four surrounding streets, asking at every door if there was a monkey in the house. He interrogated porters and their wives, washerwomen, servants, a cobbler, a greengrocer, a glazier, clerks in bookshops, a priest, a bookbinder, two guardians of the peace, children, thus testing the diversity of character and variety of temper in one and the same people. For the replies he received were quite dissimilar in nature. Some were rough, some were gentle. There were the coarse and the polished, the simple and the ironical, the prolix and the abrupt, the brief and even the silent. But of the animal he sought he had neither sight nor sound. When under the archway of an old house in the Rue Servandoni, a small, freckled, red-haired girl, who looked after the door, made reply, "'There is Monsieur Ordano's monkey.' 
Would you care to see it? And without another word, she conducted the old man to a stable at the other end of the yard. There on some rank straw and old bits of cloth, a young macaco with a chain around his middle sat and shivered. He was no taller than a five-year-old child. His livid face, his wrinkled brow, his thin lips were all expressive of mortal sadness. He fixed on the visitor the still lively gaze of his yellow eyes. Then with his small dry hand he seized a carrot, put it in his mouth, and forthwith flung it away. Having looked at the newcomers for a moment, the exile turned away his head, as if he expected nothing further of mankind or of life. Sitting huddled up, one knee in his hand, he made no further movement, but at times a dry cough shook his breast. "'It's Edgar,' said the small girl. "'He is for sale, you know.' But the old book-lover, who had come armed with anger and resentment, thinking to find a cynical enemy, a monster of malice, an anti-bibliophile, stopped short, surprised, saddened, and overcome before this little being devoid of strength and joy and hope. Recognizing his mistake, troubled by the almost human face which sorrow and suffering made more human still, he murmured, Forgive me, and bowed his head. End of chapter 3